3: As you know, Keith, Jay, the name of the radio show changes in a few weeks. We We know. know. It becomes big picture science. What you don't know is that other changes are coming. But Seth and Molly said the content won't change. It won't, but now I'm in charge. Why? Because it's the natural order of things. Who says? Seth and Molly says. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Does that mean I can eat blue cheese nachos in the studio? Yep. Awesome. But there are other changes. First, deadline for show production is Friday, 5 p.m. We're out early. For me, I go home, you stay. Second, Keith cleans the microphones of the spitters. Why me? And Jay, it's your job to laugh at Seth's puns. Every time? And I don't care who follows up on the niggling, picky editing details that Molly calls polish, but not me. Good enough is good enough. That's my motto. Are you sure Seth and Molly put you in charge? Meanwhile, I'll be in the Tranquility Room watching Apollo 13. Hey, Jay.
4: Hey, Jay Keith. Gary, how are you guys? Oh, hi. <laughs> hey, Gary, can you move tomorrow's interview from 10 to 10.07? Okay. Re-record the wind sound so it's coming from the northwest?
3: Smart choice. And bring
4: the level down a quarter decibel on one of the two seagulls in the ocean bird montage? I love it. Plus, does the tour of Cape Canaveral include lunch?
3: All call and check. Doubt it. There's no such thing as a free launch. <laughs> I am laughing. Are We Alone becomes big picture science in a couple weeks.
5: Nothing else changes.
3: Do you think that aliens have been to Earth? Absolutely. Do you think they're here now? Absolutely. They're probably out in public.
6: They probably come by now and then and probably disguised as humans.
2: I think they're just different shapes of them, too. All from looking like us to probably, you know, like insectoids or whatever, you know?
5: (laughs) Well, clearly, large numbers of uh, the public are very comfortable with the idea that there may be aliens among us.
4: So, you don't think that the aliens are really here?
5: Uh, I don't think we're actually being invaded by space aliens, no. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an alien invasion underway. Just look around.
4: This is Cleveland National Forest. Yes. Cleveland National Forest. Mark has gotten way ahead of us. Where are we headed?
6: We're headed up to the patch of trees. It's interesting because you would think that since the trees are clumped together, they would all have the same level of infestation, they would all have the same level of mortality, but you could have a healthy tree right next to a a dying tree.
4: And what's the level of mortality of climbing this hill?
6: Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm getting pretty winded.
4: <laughs> An alien
5: invasion can cause a lot of damage and you'll find both survivors and victims right next to one another. What kind of invasion is going on here and who are these attackers? Later in the show, Paul Davies on new strategies in the hunt for ET, the ethics of space travel, and the best alien movies. I'm Seth Chostak, and the aliens have invaded
7: Are We Alone?
4: Mark, you brought us up this hill right here. Of course, you were way ahead of us.
7: (laughs) So we're at the Pine Valley Trailhead in the Cleveland National Forest, where the hillside is covered with uh, coast live oak and we can see many of the trees are in various states of decline.
4: So what you're seeing out there is live oak, but what you're telling me is that much of that live oak is dying.
7: That's exactly right. I would estimate 95% of what we are looking at in this valley right now is suffering some kind of mortality from the gold-spotted oak borer.
5: Live oaks being turned into dead oaks by the gold-spotted oak boar. This is an alien invader, clearly, in the Cleveland National Forest, which, despite their name, of course, is not in Ohio. It's in California. And California scientists from the University of California, Riverside, Mark Hoddle and Vanessa Lopez, are trying to stop it. Now, the gold-spotted oak boar hasn't come from all that far away, from Mexico, from Arizona, and it's just a little bug. But, you know, alien just comes from the Latin word for other. That just means somebody from the outside. And this bug qualifies.
4: Vanessa, you just pulled some some vials out of your bag there. Oh, my. Yeah, these are gold-spotted oak borers. I Floating around with, in liquid. Yes, what is the they're liquid? in alcohol. Yeah. How many legs do they have?
7: Uh, these insects, like all insects, have six legs. <laughs> I think that was a trick question, and I got it right.
4: <laughs> what strikes me is that it's, it's such a tiny insect that is doing so much damage.
7: Right. So it's the sheer numbers of them which are causing the problems. In California, there appears to be no form of natural control to suppress the population growth of this beetle. Once the beetle came to California, probably moved here in firewood, once it emerged out of the firewood, it found a very susceptible host plant, Coast Live Oak, Quercus agrifolia, and those host plants have no natural resistance to the gold-spotted oak borer because they have not evolved with it, and they've never been attacked by this beetle before.
4: Okay, so what they look like, actually, is... You know, they're about as wide as a clipping off a fingernail, if you let your fingernails grow a little bit. (laughs) They're slim, they're black. I mean, if I saw this from far away, it would look like little pieces of um, burnt wood or something.
7: And You can see on the backs of this one here, those beautiful gold spots.
4: So you do admit that they're beautiful, although do you consider them, in the job that you are doing, do you consider them an enemy? Do you think about them as an enemy? Is that how you position yourself?
7: Yeah, I do actually. I see this as a war. (laughs) And uh, this is a very serious battle to save California's majestic oak forests. Without these trees in Southern California, the landscape will be changed irreparably. There are a variety of native insects that can only live on California's oaks. And then there are bears and deer, which also benefit from not only the habitat, but being able to feed on acorns when the acorns drop.
4: Mark, it occurs to me, though, that species invade new territory all the time and you think of the iguana that jumps on a log and floats to an island and ends up populating that island and maybe doing away with some of the other creatures that were living there very comfortably. Couldn't the same be said in this case?
7: Right, that's a very good question. I I don't think we can describe the range expansion of gold-spotted oak borer in Southern California as a natural phenomenon. Like you mentioned with the iguana on a log, that does happen. But here in California, the oak forests have been protected by about 300 miles of arid Mojave Desert, which is an insurmountable barrier for this pest. So consequently, California's oaks have evolved in this environment free from this pest. So the human movement of gold-spotted oak borer from possibly Arizona or northern Mexico into southern California is, in my opinion, a very unnatural event. It would have been probably a pile of infested oak logs in the back of a pickup truck taking a four-hour trip across the Mojave Desert into a campground here in San Diego County, something the beetle could never have achieved on its own without human assistance. And the other thing that makes this invasion unusual too is that the rate at which these movements of exotic animals into new locations is occurring is accelerating far beyond anything that we've ever witnessed previously and that's because humans are very good at moving a lot of stuff quickly and efficiently around the planet. And you may have transported something in your luggage in that 36-hour period from Europe, say, into the the heartlands of Africa or Australia or New Zealand.
5: We'll hear more as the hunt for the gold-spotted oak boar continues and the team tries to make, if you will, contact with a bug. And contact is the mission of researchers doing SETI, a search for extraterrestrial intelligence, contact with aliens out there, in space, that is. And, you know, Molly, it's been uh, 50 years since Frank Drake did that first experiment, and in all, the, all that time, we have yet to pick up a signal. And uh, Paul Davies, then at the Arizona State University, has seen this and he, as, as many people have, and he thinks that there might be something to be made of that. The fact that we haven't heard anything, maybe that means we should be changing our strategies.
4: So it's a challenge to SETI, to it researchers. It is.
5: Well, yes, yes. It's not that he's not supportive, but he, he thinks, look, if you've tried this approach for 50 years without success, uh, what about some other approaches?
4: What Do would you see any connection between making contact with the aliens out there in the cosmos and making contact with these alien invaders in the Cleveland National Forest?
5: Well, the thing about the invaders in the Cleveland National Forest is that there's clear evidence that they're there. And with SETI, we have still yet to prove that they're out there. Of course, we think they're out there, but we don't have dead trees as incontrovertible proof that something is happening. So what do you go on? You go on uh, largely the numbers, simply the fact that there are probably a trillion planets orbiting stars just in our own galaxy. Now, that's a very big number, and not a very large fraction of those has to be uh, uh, kind of nice planets in order to have a lot of places where life could spring up. It's also the fact that
8: as we learn more and more about how life got started on Earth, it doesn't seem like it's a very hard thing to do. I've got nothing against uh, traditional SETI, and uh, good luck to Frank and his colleagues for soldiering on and indeed expanding the project, but I feel that maybe after half a century of an eerie silence, the time has come to uh, think outside the box, to look for any signatures of intelligence in the universe, that is, give up the idea of looking for a message specifically crafted for mankind, but concentrate more on just looking for Anything fishy is the way I, I like to put it. Anything fishy out there in the universe.
5: <laughs> well, you discuss some of these possible footprints. Give me some examples of the sort of thing that you think we might look for.
8: Well, one thing is to uh, extend the search from radio waves to uh, other types of uh, signaling. And uh, one idea that's been suggested, which I think it deserves a look, is neutrinos, which on the face of it uh, seems not a very good way of sending signals because they're incredibly hard to detect. But exceedingly high-energy neutrinos are much easier to detect and would stand out from the background in a way that radio waves don't. The The universe is full of radio clutter and so doing radio setting means you've got to pull a signal out of that background noise, whereas in the case of very high-energy neutrinos, there really isn't any background noise. So. One could use something like a particle accelerator to generate very high energy neutrinos and then use it uh, just in a simple way, uh, you know, Morse code for example, uh, pulses of neutrinos uh, in some sort of pattern uh, would be uh, pretty much a giveaway. But uh, perhaps more imaginatively, but this is exceedingly speculative, uh, that a very good way of sending a message around the universe rather than using uh, radio or, or, or laser pulses would be to apply some sort of um, nanotechnology or perhaps package the message inside something like a virus and send these things out in uh, their countless trillions around the galaxy so that when they encounter any sort of biological organisms that are based on the same thing, let's say DNA or RNA, that uh, this message gets uploaded into the genomes of these organisms that just go on replicating it. It gets carried along for the ride. Uh, And a message like that could be preserved for tens of millions of years. uh, But we wouldn't know it's there unless we searched uh, the genomes of terrestrial organisms to see if maybe there's a message. But we
5: have, for example, sequenced the human genome, and, and it seems every week another couple more genomes. Uh, do we see anything in there that looks like it's untoward? Something that's in there that isn't the the result of uh, Darwinian evolution?
8: I'm sure nobody's looked. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is uh, my, my belief about science: is that. Uh, you should do things that you can do that don't cost very much money, even if it's an incredible long shot. You know, I have to admit that this idea is exceedingly speculative, but who knows, all you've got to do uh, is take this genomic data, which is pouring out anyway, and just run a computer algorithm just to see if there is anything in there that uh, looks like it's intelligent manipulation in some way. And uh, so... Uh, just to give a, a simple example, if you saw a sequence of prime numbers or something like that in, in what people dismiss as just junk, if you saw something of that sort, well, you'd sit up and, and pay attention.
5: Uh, what about the ethical implications of sending a virus into space? How, how do we know it wouldn't kill the life? It's intended to be a message, too.
8: One of the key things about uploading a message into genetic material is that you, uh, on the one hand, want to put it in a part of the genome that is deeply conserved over a long period of time, but you don't want to put it into anything that is fundamental to the basic machinery of that organism.
5: But but how would you know that?
8: Uh, well, uh, we're, we're, we're assuming that E.T. has a much better knowledge of genetics than we do, uh, and we're already finding there are sections of the human genome, for example, which seem to be just junk and yet are deeply conserved over tens of millions of years. So as we get to know this better, I think we'll figure out the rules of the game, and I'm assuming that uh, E.T. would be smart enough to do that.
4: Hold on to that thought. We'll have more from Paul Davies in a moment. Plus, I'll continue to track the beetle and other alien invaders from Hollywood and from us as a consequence of our exploration of space. Find out what the law is that protects our world and others.
0: Aliens are invading. Are we alone? With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
4: We continue with Seth's conversation with physicist Paul Davies about creative ways that intelligent aliens might be trying to get in touch with Earth that scientists have not yet explored.
5: You also suggest that there might be a probe, for example, trolling our solar system, something that's, that's here to uh, check up on us or spy on us or simply return information
8: about what's going on here. Uh, do you think that that's a plausible idea? I do. I think this is uh, actually quite an odd idea that uh, that E.T. might have passed through the solar system a very long time ago. And and one of the, I should say, one of the big problems about thinking about SETI is people tend to focus on much too short a timescale. There's no particular reason why extraterrestrial machines or even beings should have come to our vicinity of the galaxy just in the recent past, too much of a coincidence. So we have to think in terms of tens, hundreds of millions or even billions of years. And the question is, uh, supposing an alien expedition have passed through the solar system or we've been targeted uh, for a probe, uh, say a hundred million years ago to pluck a figure out of mid-air. Then the question is, what is gonna survive for a hundred million years? Now I've given you one example, which is genetic material, but another example is if something uh, is in space, in a protected environment uh, it's not inconceivable that it could have a very long lifetime I'm not sure about a hundred million years but possibly advanced technology and so such a probe might be uh, for example keeping pace with Earth at one of the so-called Lagrange points uh, where it wouldn't need any rocket fuel for a in-flight cor- correction and it would just sit there passively monitoring the Earth so that if something interesting like us uh, happens at some stage in its history well then it would would wake up and Uh, maybe attempt to communicate.
5: Yeah, well, you mentioned the Lagrange points, and these are places in nearby space, a part of the Earth-Moon system or the Earth-Sun system, where you can put something, you can park a, a, I don't know, a time capsule, and it'll stay there for a long time. But there have been searches where people have pointed telescopes at these places trying to see if there's anything sitting there. Right. Uh, unfortunately, they're not very sensitive, of course, so something, you know, the size of a, a small SUV could very well be in these things. And maybe we should point transmitters at these Lagrange points and see if we can wake anybody up. But, but how really could you find a probe in our solar system?
8: They needn't be very large. That's the problem. Uh, it's almost impossible to rule out this scenario because uh, we're already our own uh, satellites are getting smaller and smaller. And we could imagine that a very advanced technology might produce uh, a probe that could be you know, the size of a pea or even smaller and still have enormous capabilities. Uh, of course, if it's going to transmit radio, it's going to need some sort of antenna, but that isn't going to be very conspicuous. So uh, we would find it almost impossible to try and track down something, unless, of course, uh, uh, it is at the Lagrange points, and uh, we get enough sensitivity to search that in some detail. But I think that this is a bit of a long shot. I think our best hope is that if it's there, it's there for a purpose, and presumably that purpose is some sort of communication, and that maybe we should be making some attempt to communicate with it. Paul Davies, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Now, Paul Davies' suggestions sound very reasonable, but are they so reasonable? For example, uh, should we be looking for neutrinos from space? Or, Or maybe we should be looking at the DNA of microbes? Maybe there's a message in there from aliens that came here a very long time ago. Well, I asked Frank Drake. After all, he started this whole experiment 50 years ago doing the first modern SETI search.
2: Any reasonable estimate of how many stars might have signals coming from their planetary systems tells you that you may have to look at 10 million stars before you're looking at a system where there could be signals coming to you. And we have not begun to look at that many. So the the silence isn't eerie. It just reminds us that our galaxy is a very large place and that it's going to take a very major effort for a very long time to do a search which is really comprehensive.
5: Well, Paul is suggesting not that we give up on uh, the kind of searches we've traditionally done, but he says, let's expand the search. Now, maybe that's just something that's easy to say, but maybe there's a lot of merit in that. I mean, he suggests, for example, neutrinos. Uh, Any thoughts about whether the aliens are wielding neutrino accelerators to get in touch with us?
2: Uh, I think the point that we should be expanding our search is very well taken. The activities of creatures, intelligent creatures, which are not only different from us, but perhaps millions of years beyond us in their evolution may be using things which we can detect, which we cannot imagine now. And to cope with that, what we must do is broaden our search in every conceivable way which is allowed by the laws of physics. But presumably, if there are signals coming from space that are not natural
5: processes producing a lot of neutrinos, the physicists will find them, right? I mean, it's not necessary for the SETI community to get their knickers in a bundle about this.
2: The neutrino thing is a little more complicated than that, that neutrinos are extremely hard to detect, as Paul says. Almost every neutrino approaching the earth goes right through the earth and out the other side. In our neutrino detectors, we are happy if we detect 10 neutrinos a day, and those are coming from the sun, an enormous source of neutrinos. And that's just because so few actually can be detected in any reasonable detector. So I I think personally that neutrinos are a very unlikely means of communication because it is so inefficient. You have to use enormous energies to generate the neutrinos at a level which might be detected. But what about
5: this other suggestion he made? Look into the DNA of ancient microbes or maybe some other beings here on the planet because maybe some uh, viral messenger was sent to Earth a long time ago. It's infected the life forms here, and we all are simply, uh, if you will, glass bottles for messages put in there by aliens. Well,
2: that's actually a good idea primarily because it's easy to do. The cost of sequencing genomes these days is very small. Now, what you look for, of course, is, again, not going to be a mystery. What, how, how might the extraterrestrials encode information in a genome? We would need to construct algorithms which can detect patterns or unlikely sequences within the junk parts of the genome. I think it's a, a very great long shot, and if this method is used to communicate, I think it will be used primarily by exploiting microbes, But it's worth doing.
5: Well, but let me point out, humans don't have the longest genome, but they also don't have the shortest. And our genome, I mean, all those base pairs that make up the DNA that define what you were like as a baby, that fits on one CD. So even if all the DNA were some sort of encoding from aliens, that means that they're limiting themselves to like a gigabyte of info. It seems like a lot of work just to send one gigabyte of information.
2: Well, yes, but maybe it's very inexpensive. And of course, you can send different gigabytes (laughs) and different sets of junk DNA. And in that way, if you go to enough effort, you'll send the whole encyclopedia for a civilization that recognizes that the message is there if you collect enough bugs and decode them.
5: I think that's going to definitely frustrate the biologists if they find that all these bacteria have different uh, DNA, substantially different DNA. It's all part of a puzzle. Well, Frank, it's been 40 years since you did the first modern SETI experiment. Uh, I take it you're not discouraged by the approach or the experiment itself.
2: I'm not discouraged because I know we've hardly started on this search, but there's always my hope that the extraterrestrials may be trying to help us, and that it's actually easier than we imagine. Right now we imagine it's a very long, hard search, but Miss maybe. We'll either be lucky or the ETs are helping us, and there will actually be a discovery in a much shorter time than we presently think realistically.
4: Frank Drake is an astronomer at the SETI Institute. He's also the father of modern SETI. The Eerie Silence is the newest book from physicist Paul Davies, whom we heard from earlier. Arizona State University is where he calls home. It's also where the gold-spotted oak borer calls home. That and Mexico, its native homes, before it invaded Southern California. You can hear how dry that is. Is this oak? Uh, Is this dead oak?
7: So this tree in front of us is probably about a 175-year-old oak. It has been felled by the fire department.
4: So this oak had to be felled. It had to be cut down because, oh, a little salabander just ran across it. You see that? Yeah. Yeah. It was a dying tree.
7: It was a dying tree, and it was posed a dropping hazard across the road here. We right now are looking at six oak trees which are completely dead, no foliage on them. And then surrounding these six large dead oak trees, are probably around about another eight to nine trees which are showing various symptoms which are indicative of infestation of gold-spotted oak borer.
4: They're jumping to the, the ones that are close.
7: That's exactly right. As the adults emerge out of these dying oaks, the females will lay their eggs on other oak trees, and then the problem just keeps radiating out. It's like... I guess concentric rings in a pond after you've dropped a pebble in it. The problem just radiates out towards the margins. And what
4: are the margins in this case?
7: Well, the margins could potentially be all of California. We see no reason why the gold-spotted oak borer cannot spread all the way up into northern California and possibly southern Oregon.
4: Now, you're holding an axe. Um, You're holding it behind your back, although I can't forget the fact that you are holding an axe because I saw it. It's okay, so so a small
7: it. hatchet that we have. A oh, hatchet, that sounds use, much more safe. A yeah, lot safer, <laughs> yes, but we're not axe murderers out here, even though we are in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> right.
4: I don't think we even get cell phone reception here.
7: We use the hatchet to uh, slice away the bark on infested trees until we get down to the cambium layer. and The cambium layer is a thin zone of living tissue that lies between the bark and the dead wood on the inside of the tree.
4: Now, if I put my hand here, Vanessa, are there beetles underneath this bark, underneath my hand?
6: Quite possibly, yes, larvae.
7: We're going to be looking for gold-spotted oak borer larvae, so we'll start chiseling away with the hatchet right now. So what do you see? Okay. There's a lot of black squiggly lines that are lying between this red cambium and the white heartwood of the tree. And this is where the larvae have been feeding. You can see the damage.
4: The thing about trees and plants is they can't move. They can't run away from their predators.
7: That's exactly right. So a big part of a way a plant defends itself is through host plant resistance or chemistry. And we think that part of the reason gold-spotted oak borer is doing so well here in Southern California is that the oaks here have not evolved any defense systems against an insect like gold-spotted oak borer because they have never seen it before.
4: So, so Mark, we'll play that word association game. I'm going to give you a word here and you have to tell me what first comes into your mind. Okay, so the first word is gold-spotted oak borer.
7: Gold-spotted oak borer.
4: That's the first word that comes to mind. We're doing word association. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right.
7: Gold-spotted oak borer. Unnatural plague killing oak trees.
4: I didn't know that was one word. How about parasite? A
7: debilitating organism that does not kill its host. Okay.
4: You've never played this game before. And then the other one is parasitoid.
7: Organism that kills its host.
4: So that's what a parasitoid is. Can you talk about the difference between a parasitoid and parasite? And for the record, you're terrible at this game. Okay.
7: Okay. A parasite uh, debilitates its host by extracting nutrients from it, but the parasite won't kill its host. In contrast, a parasitoid feeds on its host to such a level that it eventually kills the host, and a parasitoid typically needs one host to complete its development.
4: Okay, so in the example of the movie Alien, because that's such a vivid Mm -hmm. um, image, that is a parasitoid situation where the alien burrows into the human and kills the human in the process of its development.
7: They took that idea from entomology. They, li- they
4: took that from you. They stole that from you guys.
7: They stole that idea from entomologists. What you're looking at an alien is a classic parasitoid host system, and the parasitoid feeds internally on the host, and when it emerges, it kills the host. In the instance of aliens, it's the uh, time space travelers, the humans are the hosts for the parasitoid, which is the alien, and the immature alien develops inside the human host, and when it pops out, it kills it.
4: So they could have titled it parasitoid.
7: They could have, but it doesn't sound as good as Alien. (laughs) So we are looking for the insect equivalent of that alien from that science fiction movie, whereby the parasitoids will feed solely on gold-spotted oak borer, and the eggs of the parasitoid will hatch inside the larvae of the gold-spotted oak borer, and when those eggs hatch, the larvae of the parasitoid feed on the gold-spotted oak borer, eventually killing it. So this has the advantage of reducing gold-spotted oak borer populations, but also allowing the parasitoids to multiply and spread to other areas within the oak forests to hunt down more gold-spotted oak borer larvae to attack.
4: But you don't know what that is yet, what species that is?
7: No, we don't, but we have made good progress on preparing a candidate list from our explorations in Arizona and the subsequent work we will be doing in Mexico. And from that candidate list, we will bring those parasitoids back into the quarantine facility at the University of California, Riverside, and we will run the safety tests according to the regulations laid out by the USDA, APHIS, California Department of Food and Agriculture, and the North American Plant Protection Organization. Looks like some of this damage, deep black squiggly lines where the larvae of the gold-spotted oak borer whittle away the wood until we find them. Definitely here, you can see the damage.
3: What's your favorite alien movie, and why? I think it would be Aliens, because it was so good, so true to life. More of the Worlds, because it's bad graphics.
6: Favorite alien movie would be Aliens, because of the alien popping out of the eggs and attacking all the humans.
3: Well, I have many, but I'd say uh, Enemy Mine is uh, definitely up there. Repo Man.
6: Probably Men in Black. Alien.
3: E.T. Probably Independence Day.
5: It's sort of interesting to hear what the public thinks are their favorite alien films. But, you know, I kind of wonder how that accords with an expert like Andy Anotko. He's a technologist and a big fan of alien films. Andy, if I asked you to name your top sci-fi films, what would you name?
9: Well, my absolute top alien film would be The Abyss. Really? And it takes a while before you even see the aliens. And it's not like a, it's 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 the aliens as angels, almost literally sort of thing where, you know, they're the beatific people who say, oh, you poor, poor, primitive creatures. Why must you make war against each other? We only want you to stop killing each other and appeal to your higher interests.
5: Well, on the one hand, I have to say it's slightly unrealistic for me to believe that <laughs> the, the aliens care about whether we blow one another up or not. Uh, what did you think of the alien films?
9: I thought the first one was pretty much a straightforward horror movie. You know, there's something dark lurking in the shadows that wants to kill us. Ooh, boo, (laughs) run away from the thing that wants to kill us all. I thought that the sequel was much, much better because it was just so much of a more human movie. Also, it had about 40 times worth aliens. And so there's a certain Joe Bob Briggs (laughs) gene inside my genetic makeup that says, oh, boy. More, more aliens to blow up.
5: Yeah. Well, it, it, indeed. I mean, it was, the first one wasn't very sophisticated, but it was a good horror film. Uh, if, it, if it was indeed just a horror film, it was at least a good one. It strikes me that movie aliens in general have slightly more sophisticated motivations than the ones you see in TV. Maybe I'm just thinking of the old Star Trek series where the aliens really had very simple motives, but it's, it's nice to know that somebody out there might have something sophisticated in mind.
9: Do you favor the clothed aliens or the naked aliens? Because that also seems to be a big distinction, doesn't it? It's the ones that, that approach us in shimmering gowny robes that seem to have like the higher motives. It's the ones that are going to attack us when they're naked that seem to be up to no good.
5: Well, my impression is the ones that are not clothed tend to look like children, and they tend to be good aliens. There aren't too many good aliens in the movies. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and, of course, uh, Little E.T., those who were fundamentally good aliens, they just came down to either amuse us or play with us or just pick some plants.
9: E.T is sort of like the other side of a middle in episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Part of the away team has been left behind, but they're going to fix the reactor core and fix the transporter. Meanwhile, but the Commander Data and the others do to stay out of trouble and stop getting killed from these gendarmes. That's what E.T. is about. And there are a couple of different movies like that where it's not they're, – they're bureaucrats. They shouldn't have been left behind. They really don't want to cause any trouble. The last thing they want to do is be discovered by anybody. And so how do they, how do they stop from screwing things up uh, before the rescue team comes down and picks them up?
5: One of the things that I notice in so many of these alien films is that we manage to triumph via our humanity. We we prove to them that we have things like love, or, or you know, or honor, or we have science. In the case of the day the earth stood still, we have some what we think is quintessentially human trait that they take uh, pity on, or at least sympathy. They they, <laughs> you know, it, that that seems so very strange to me. But we triumph basically because we're human.
9: Yeah, and there's a certain amount of smugness about that too that we have to prove that, well, your silly Vulcan mind does not understand this thing called love. It cannot be counted by your so-called computers, but I tell you, it is the key to all human experience. That is why you will always be less evolved than you might think so. It's always the use of the aliens as a way of sort of being a more positive mirror upon us. We want to believe that we can unite for a common cause. We want to believe that if we needed to prove that we have a reason to survive, we can actually come up with that reason, Uh, when in truth, you know, we're just getting by day to day trying to put. in our cars. And that's that, That's why we go to the movies. We don't like to be reminded that we are essentially support systems for gas stations.
5: Okay. Finally, Andy, uh, alien films have been with us, gee, at least since the 30s. I take it there's no end in sight for this.
9: Yeah. And isn't it terrible, though, that I think that the alien movies are morphings to make it more spectacular with the effects, to make them look more realistic. And at last, create an alien movie where the aliens can be walking around in broad daylight instead of on um, these dark, underlit, steam-filled, lower levels of a ship with no lighting. The, the great alien movies are the ones where it's not about the aliens, it's about the humans reacting to the aliens. If we lose that sort of character-based approach to these alien movies, I think we're going to get better effects, but less drama. Andy Anatko, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a slice.
4: Technology is what tech pundit Andy Adnotko likes to write about on his blog, which you'll find a link to on our site, radio.seti.org, And maybe not surprisingly, he also is a fan of science fiction movies, as we heard. <laughs> Coming up, the ethics of making contact in space and the hunt for the alien beetle in California draws near its target, its alien invasion on Are We Alone?,
5: In the movies, of course, aliens present both an opportunity and a problem, usually a problem. They come to Earth and they do terrible things, and occasionally they're friendly, like in E.T., and, you know, they're an opportunity to make friends from a different world.
4: But sometimes they come into your spaceship in outer space and they burst out of your stomach.
5: Yeah, that That's That's in the problem
4: category, isn't it?
5: (laughs) That's definitely in the problem category, and that's one of those things that's going to ruin a lot of your shirts. But the thing is (laughs) that... uh, Actually, you know, in some sense, this isn't such a hypothetical situation. It isn't a totally fictional situation. In the next few years, we're going to send more probes to Mars looking for life. And in the next few decades, we're going to have rockets that go to Mars, pick up rocks, and bring them back to Earth. So there's a lot of effort, quite a bit of effort, actually, at NASA to worry about what the implications of this are because there's the possibility of contamination.
4: Contaminating My, another world.
5: Yeah, well, we could contaminate our own world. We could bring something, the equivalent of the gold-spotted oak boar back to Earth from Mars. And maybe it's not very likely, but you wouldn't want to bring a pathogen back from Mars and just have it ravage our planet because uh, it's an alien species. And on the other hand, we don't want to take any of our uh, bacteria or microbes or whatever else to Mars and contaminate that planet. And then when we go to find life on the red planet, we, we, we find it. But it turns out it's our own life, and and, and we fooled ourselves. So this question of contamination back and forth, this is the subject of international law.
10: My name is Margaret McLean. I'm the associate director and the director for bioethics at the Markla Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University.
1: My name is Margaret Race. I am a researcher at SETI Institute, and I work on planetary protection with NASA's Planetary Protection Office the discussion now is coming out in the public because we're bumping into things that people haven't thought about before other planets other moons and what would it mean if there's life out there most people are not aware that we have had an outer space treaty for the past four decades since 1967. in fact discussions about the treaty started at the time of sputnik So there are ethical considerations built into that treaty. It says, thou shalt not cross-contaminate. You don't want to send hitchhiker microbes from the Earth that could contaminate another body like Mars. And likewise, when you bring things back, samples, for instance, you want to make sure that you're keeping them contained in such a way that you don't present a biohazard to Earth.
5: Who are the signatories to this? Who abides by the Outer Space Treaty and... uh who checks up on people to make sure that they're following
1: it? The Outer Space Treaty was signed by over 90 countries. It's a United Nations Treaty and the Spacefaring Nations. So those orga- organizations, institutions, and countries that launch things into space are the ones that agree to abide by it. But Margaret McLean, you're undoubtedly aware of the Outer Space Treaty. Is it just trying to do the right
5: thing,
10: or is there anything controversial in there? Well, I think it gives us one basic standard. But it's not the only standard. So the one basic standard is to do no harm. So, you know, in the two examples that Margaret gave, it was either do no harm to those places you may visit and then do no harm to Earth after your visit. So to keep things clean, not to cross-contaminate, etc. But I think some of the things that we're talking about now in terms of how would we approach extraterrestrial life are pushing us beyond that do-no-harm standard to ask some other questions about value, intrinsic value of the cosmos? Or does the cosmos only have instrumental value in what it can do for us? Let, let me ask you some specifics, because I want to know
5: how this Outer Space Treaty, or just the ethical consideration of outer space, translates into regulations. For example, I have a little deed in my office. It's a, you know, a small frame hanging on the wall there, which gives me some claim to some lunar real estate. Apparently, the Lunar Republic Society has purchased an acre of uh, lunar real estate in the
1: Sea of Rainbows. Can I start building condos? Unfortunately, <laughs> Seth, you can't. The Outer Space Treaty is an actually very interesting treaty. It is um, similar to the Antarctic Treaty in that it treats the resource, in this case outer space, as a resource for humankind. And it says no militarization, no nuclearization, no building of bases, and making it a resource for everyone and maintaining the environment there.
5: So so does it extend to uh, bodies
1: beyond the moon, Marg? The Outer Space Treaty speaks of the moon and uh, moon planets and other celestial bodies. So the question is, as we go out into other bodies, if they have life on them, or if they don't, do the rules that we have on this planet necessarily apply? And so that's where there's precedent we can build on, but then there's ethical questions that stump us. This, this
5: planetary protection, as it's called, uh, works both ways, right? We're, we're trying to protect both Mars
1: and the Earth. Correct. When we do planetary protection, as under the Outer Space Treaty, it's to protect against biological cross-contamination. And when the treaty was written, there was a kind of... Uh, science-centric view of it. We wanted to protect against contamination because we didn't want to deliver earth organisms up there when we were going up there to find whether there would be extraterrestrials up there. So part of it is to protect our own science right. and make sure that future countries who would go up to space would have the opportunity to do good science without having a contaminated environment. But now we have the question, if there's life up there and if it's truly extraterrestrial and different than us, what does that mean? Well, Margaret,
5: do we have any ethical obligations to uh, Martian microbes? Are we obliged
10: to leave them alone? I I think this is where we're starting to really push on our ethics because we have built our ethical systems on what we know on carbon-based life. And we've got a system that gives us indications of what beings we ought to respect and how we ought to respect them and how we treat other humans and how we treat the environment. Now, we're not all in agreement about those standards, even here on Earth. So this adds an order of magnitude, I think, to the importance of our conversations about what it means to meet the truly other other. And I would argue that we owe some respect to the truly other other. Now the nature of that or even the extent of that I think is one of those areas where we need some deep thinking and
1: good conversation. And if you think about how we treat ethically treat organisms here on earth we treat humans very differently than we do livestock or pets and we have Very little ethical consideration about microbes. I suspect all of us have brushed our teeth this morning or used soap and perhaps in our lives have taken antibiotics. We kill microbes and we think nothing of it. And the only time we actually thought about it was when we were going to get rid of smallpox. And there were very strong arguments saying we shouldn't eradicate it completely. But those were almost selfish considerations because if someone still had smallpox, you'd want to be able to have the reserves to work on the antidotes. So there were very selfish ones around biosafety. And there's nothing wrong about that. That's a good way to approach it. But what we're saying is if life on Mars is completely different, if it is not carbon-based, or if it's carbon-based with a different biochemistry and is really unique, we are at a position where we could literally change the existence or the evolutionary trajectory of other organisms. And I think that's why the ethicists are so interested. Let me, let me
5: put it to you, uh, Margaret, just very directly, very, very brutally, because this, this comes up often at space conferences. Suppose we do go to Mars and we find out that underneath the surface of Mars, you know, 50 feet down, 100 feet down, whatever it is, there's an entire biota. It's it's all life that you need a microscope to see, all right? There's nothing crawling on the surface. Uh, what's our ethical obligation to that, suppose it extends over the entire planet. So if we go and we say, we're going to colonize Mars, we're going to terraform it, we're going to build whatever, we're going to destroy that indigenous life form. But
10: after all, they were only bacteria. We'll have plenty of them to study in the lab. What's your response to that? So the question really is, what is our relationship as quote unquote explorers with that which we are exploring? And I would argue that those life forms five feet under, 25 feet under, make some claim on us to be careful about what we do, not to exploit weaker others. Um, um,
5: it, it sounds to me like there's no prime directive, however, for microbes, right, that, that uh, we should be cautious. But on the other hand, uh, we can't stay on this planet uh, exclusively forever. I think many people would agree with that, and uh, Mars is nearby. Let, uh, Margaret, let me ask you, would your point of view change if I said, look, uh, what about a planet that's clearly not inhabited, uh, such as Mercury, for example? A sterile planet, uh, does it have some intrinsic value
1: of its own, or are we allowed to do whatever we want? Take, put the moon in there, too, because what, what, the moon we know has no life. We've been there. We've brought samples back. I would argue that there
10: is intrinsic value to the universe and to the cosmos. And what we need to work out is how we respond to that intrinsic value. So the theologians are going to say, think about yourself you know, as a human being, as a co-creator with God of this universe. It begins to set a series of limits of actions about what you can do if you begin to think of yourself
1: as responsible for this creation. One of the things that we have bumped up against is the fact that as you're talking about the stewardship and the notion of taking care, it's a very Western view, a Judeo-Christian one, if you will. And in talking about this, it seems we really need to bring in other perspectives. So one of the things that a number of folks in the space community have said is, how do we make sure that we bring in Hindu, Buddhist, pantheist, atheist, and others, because we're talking for humankind If we take intrinsic value seriously,
10: then the question isn't what can it do for me, but the question is what can I do to kind of maintain the cosmos? I want to thank both of you, Margaret Race. It's been a pleasure to be here. And Margaret McLean for being with us. Thank you for having me.
4: Margaret McLean is Director of Bioethics at the Markola Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Margaret Race is a biologist and Principal Investigator at the SETI Institute. And
5: now, back to the Cleveland National Forest, where Molly continues with her team, final chapter of their journey, to make contact with a live alien, alien to California, that is, the gold-spotted oak borer.
7: See, look at that. Isn't that impressive? Look at those tunnels that they have dug. There's a lot of damage in this tree and it's not surprising that these oaks are dying. They can't sustain this level of feeding. This is amazing, look at this. You can see a hole on the other side of the bark. Is that how it got in? This is how the beetle came out.
6: They, there's large numbers in the trees, so the oaks, they can't transport they're nutrients, they can't get it to the canopy and that's why you see the canopy dying off first.
7: Just pinched one. Here you go, here's a larva. You can see he's slightly, I've just slightly nicked him with the hatchet, but this fleshy white basically is like a large maggot. We're just going to try and just chisel him out a little more. You can see him. Whoops, I just cut him in half. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Oh here's another one, look. We'll just pop this uh, pre-pupil larva out of its little cell. Okay, try not to pop it
4: in this direction. <laughs> but there's two in oh, he's qu- is that one long one? No, it's two. Yes. Oh, This one's stretched out. <laughs> oh, he's pulling the end of it. It's like a long worm. He's pulling it out. It's yeah. white and wormy. Okay, so, oh. this is-
7: <laughs> so this one's probably a centimeter and a half long. So this one's still a feeding larva at this stage. This other one, which I'm pulling out of the same piece of bark. <sighs> See, look at that. See how it's gone into that hairpin form? Yeah, it's folded over on itself. Right, exactly. So that's one step away from going into the pupil stage. And then once it becomes a pupa, it'll probably be in the pupil stage for a couple of months, and then it'll emerge as an adult. We can use the larvae to extract DNA, and this is part of Vanessa's work, to determine where California's source population originated. Was it southern Arizona? Did it come from northern Mexico?
6: One, so that we could better be able to find um, natural enemies that cold-lobbed with it in its natural habitat, and also so that we could know how it was introduced into California and that maybe we could put out information so people aren't continuing to bring firewood over.
7: And the other thing we can do with these larvae is we can see if they have parasites associated with them. When we have extracted these larvae from trees in Arizona, Occasionally, we find attached to the outsides of their bodies larvae of parasitic wasps. And these parasitoids are killing the gold-spotted oak borer larvae. And in California, we have not seen that. The problem is, is dire in California, and it may require natural enemies from different parts of the home range of gold-spotted oak borer to bring its numbers down to levels that we see in Arizona and Mexico, which are almost non-existent in comparison to here.
4: But isn't this a dangerous game to play that you have one species alien invasion of a beetle, and so then you introduce another species to combat the invasion of the first species, and you end up with a big mess because that that second introduction starts doing its own damage.
7: With uh, biological control, we're very concerned about our natural enemies having what we term non-target impacts where the natural enemies start attacking and killing other organisms in the environment that we don't want to be harmed. And to mitigate this risk, we do a lot of safety testing in the quarantine facility to determine the host breadth or the food requirements for the natural enemies that we bring in for gold-spotted oak borer.
4: And is it true that this is a biohazard safety 3, level 3?
7: Right. This work is done in a biosecurity level 3 quarantine facility at the University of California, Riverside. So we take the utmost precautions to make sure that the work is done in a very secure facility where accidental escapes cannot happen.
5: Mark Hoddle is a biological control specialist at the University of California, Riverside, where Vanessa Lopez is a graduate student in entomology. And that's it for our show. We thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the universe, requires some thought as to what to do when they find it.